0: Hello and thank you for joining us. I am your host, soulful business and leadership coach, Jeffrey Biesecker. We are all on the journey to discover the light inside. That beacon which guides us to live our truest, most authentic self. This is episode 0055. We so often become the identities which are imprinted upon us. By our upbringing, our environments, society, and even ourselves. The stories we live under, the stories others tell us, were simply the stories we choose and become comfortable within. Discovering our true self can often feel like a battle for our soul. We struggle to find the light inside. Sometimes that drama keeping us from discovering our light is buried deep in our emotional DNA. Our greatest battles become aligning our emotional set point in finding our true north. Our guest Andrew Ecker knows the pain and suffering of overcoming generational and cultural trauma all too well. Born into an inheritance of trauma, both his parents were addicted to drugs and died very young. Growing up in the height of the Reagan and Clinton war on drugs, led Andrew down a path of destruction that included cocaine and heroin abuse, ultimately causing him to serve three and a half years in prison on federal drug charges. While in prison, Andrew found much-needed healing through the use of ancient technologies, including drumming and the ceremonial processes of his Native American ancestry, later inspiring him to write his book, The Sacred Seven. His program, The Sacred Seven, a path to finding the wholeness of self-identity, is guiding others on their path of rediscovery helping others transform their lives beyond trauma and allowing them to rediscover their true north. From the four winds, life will rise. Unto the beauty it is, when the sun mingles with the twilight. Join us as we discover why the essence of what is not seen, only felt, becomes the secret to making us feel truly alive on this episode of The Light Inside. Today, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a project that is connecting with others in a super meaningful way. The Borgian Project is fighting for the underdog with their mission to address poverty. As one of the most powerful nations on earth, our leaders in the United States can and should be doing more. The Borgian Project's innovative national campaign is working to make poverty a focus of US foreign policy. Did you know worldwide, 736 million people live in extreme poverty. About half of the world's poor, around 368 million, live in just five countries. In developing regions, one in 10 people live on less than $1.90 a day. That's just $1.90 a day. An estimated 2.5 billion people lack access to improved and safe sanitation. One billion people live without electricity, and hundreds of millions more live with unreliable or expensive power. Poverty is the principal cause of global world hunger. As of 2018, 822 million people are struggling with hunger worldwide. That's one in nine people. Over 2 billion people lack regular access to safe, nutritious, and sufficient food. And 785 million people drink unsafe water or have to travel more than 30 minutes just to get a drink. By focusing on mobilization of people, educating others on the devastating effects of poverty and hunger, and building awareness of the ever-increasing global issue, you can become a force to help bring about the necessary changes. The Borgen Project is an incredible nonprofit organization. In a nutshell, the organization is doing amazing work to fight extreme poverty and hunger. If you'd like to become a powerful agent joining in the fight, visit borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org org today to find out how you can take action now in helping to end the global fight on hunger and poverty Today is author, spiritual guide, speaker, and course creator Andrew Ecker. Hello, Andrew. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing well. I saw you doing, doing your ritual well. setup there,
1: so I was not going to interrupt that for a minute. Let you find the space. Oh, nice. Yeah, I was just <laughs> yeah, just getting a little one of you know the altar kind of going here. It's uh, awesome. Yeah, I like to have that burning and just nice. We we have a little little sage going today uh it's actually a um, blend that i make with cedar lavender and some sage oh wow so it's yeah it's got like the the cedar for the masculine the lavender for the feminine and the sage for the child Mm, awesome so it's uh yeah it's pretty nice yeah yeah it's nice to get it going so, yeah, I'm excited about today. I think this is going to be really good. Likewise. Likewise. Yeah. I, I, we
0: had a little time to kind of set with this over the last week, and I'm excited to dive in.
1: Yeah, and I, I checked out your podcast. Um, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so when I get done, I'll make sure and go over there. I don't have iTunes, but yeah. um, I think I can. I, I've i uh, got, like, I think seven or eight different platforms
0: I'm on. Uh you know, I can, I'll, I'll send you over a direct link to the anchor. That's
1: the easiest one. Okay. Yeah. And then I can do a review on a couple of them. Sure. That'd be fantastic. I'd appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be we'll, great. we'll try to, we'll try to pump it out too on our social awesome. a little bit. Awesome. That'd be good. Yeah. I've got so a- let me know whenever you're ready. Um, we can start. So. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll but no hurry. We'll cold roll in. Yeah. <laughs> this
0: is a pretty casual affair, usually. You know, we uh, just kind of open the door and step through and see where the uh, spirit force guides us. <laughs> nice. That sounds great.
1: That's nice. Awesome.
0: So, we talked a little bit earlier on about uh, sharing your background a little bit, uh, your history growing up. You spent a, a little bit of time. In prison behind bars, uh, you know, for lack of better word to
2: put it. No, there, that's exactly <laughs> what it was. You know, <laughs> that. I mean, that, that's exactly Let's what Let's
0: dive was. in a little bit with your upbringing and your history. Uh, you now are teaching uh, a sacred teaching called the Sacred Seven based on your Native American heritage. Yes acting as a spiritual advisor of sorts now let's get into your history and your background that led you to the path of this discovery and led you to evolve into who you are now
1: oh thank you um and i'd love to introduce myself to the audience here so yes uh, i'll introduce myself in the best way i know how in my traditional language and then also in the contemporary uh so dogate uh, Andrew Ecker Inishay, Donna Inishinigie Inde Inishay, Irish Dashiachin Inde Dashiachay, German Dashianneli, A Cote go A E to Shli A Portland Oregon Inisha, Shema A Kathy Lindsey Wole, Shaza A Dale Ecker Wole. So I am Andrew Ecker, my mother Kathy Lindsey, my father Dale Ecker, my mother's mother Elba Gallegos Apache woman from New Mexico, my father's mother Evelyn Beatty Irish woman from Pennsylvania. My mother's father, Leroy Lindsay, Apache man from Arkansas. My father's father, Wayne Ecker, German Algonquin from Pennsylvania. I have a daughter, Bailey, son, Peyton, beautiful, beloved fiance, Monica. I was incarnated into this body in the land of the Multnomah in Portland, Oregon. Although I reside here in the land of the Akma, Atham Peeposh Maricopa, Inde people here in the Valley of the sun in Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> so I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, Jeff, and and a part of your podcast to really ground into this really foundational idea of uh, understanding self-identity. And the path that that I guess I chose spiritually to get here was one that Mm. was a challenge uh, for me. You know, my earliest memories uh, with my mom were shoplifting to support her her drug habit. Uh, I remember being in the grocery cart and looking over her shoulder, making sure that there were no store employees or security guards watching her as she filled my diaper bag and, um, you know, her body basically with uh, alcohol and cigarettes and, you know, sometimes meat and different items and clothing, of course, from other stores. So that was, um, you know, being a kid growing up around that kind of environment uh, w- led me to a lot of different concepts of self identity yes you know it was challenging uh, my mom's substance abuse and her you know mental illness and the struggles that she went through at the time there really was not um any resources like there are now and you know not only was my mom addicted to drugs but my father as well my father you know had a substance abuse ish, uh, issue and you know multiple incarcerations and Prison, uh, along with my mom being hospitalized and, and put in prison as well. So this was during the 80s, and um, you know the late 70s and the the 80s, and it was the Reagan era, uh, which was eight years of real, um, what I would say is war. You know, on uh, they called it the war on drugs, yes. but it was really a war on people and families. And our family was definitely one of those. Um, some of the listeners that are old enough might remember the D.A.R.E. program, mm. which was the drug abuse uh, resistance and education program that was set up by uh, Nancy Reagan. Uh, this was a tactic that was used by the federal government uh, to help, you know, the, uh, the drug pa- uh, epidemic at the time. And, you know, people don't realize this, uh, some, some may, you know, that I, and I've spoke to this at conferences and different speaking engagements. And there, there are a lot of people that remember, you know, what it was like to have armed police officers going into schools, uh, interrogating children and getting children to turn in their parents. Mm. Um, so you add that like on the television, you know, with the news broadcast saying that the D.A.R.E. program was doing this, and then that fueled by cocaine addiction and mental health issues, uh, I was drilled by my, by my mom and her boyfriend and basically everybody in our community uh, that I was not to talk to the police, you know, that the police would destroy our family, the mm. police would take my mom from me, that I would never be able to see her again, uh, all of these, these ideas, of, of really war. And, you know, subsequently I, I, did experience that. I did experience the DARE program coming into my school and, you know, I'm in the fifth grade. My heart is pounding. Um, and I remember the DARE officer, you know, this is an armed police officer coming in the school, waving flags and banners and educating children. And this is a low income neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, yeah. my New Mexico family, you know, decided to move to Portland because one uncle got a good job and we were very clannish, you know, natives from New Mexico. Uh, and that kind of gave an access point to everybody else so he could support everybody. And I grew up on the same street where my grandmother, my grandfather, my great grandmother, my great grandfather, my aunts, my cousins, basically all in one little small yeah. neighborhood in Southeast Portland. And, you know, going to school that day and listening to the, the dare cops, these like intimidating people talk to a group of fifth graders. And they told us, they said, if you have one drug addict parent, you're 50% more likely to become a drug addict. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't a mathematician, you know, but I knew what 50 and 50 was, that was a hundred. Yeah. So my child mind, you know, it was the first time really anybody told me, who I was, um, that I was genetically flawed. And then of course you grew up with the stereo to being, you know, my mom's mom was uh, native. My father's mom was Irish. So, you know, all this statistical and, you know, information about alcoholism and drug addiction and, you know, uh, drunk Irish people, drunk Indians, you know, it was just like this whole overwhelming idea of self identity and then the complexities of growing up and uh, coming to grips with the idea that your government has genocided your ancestors. Yeah. You know, that is a really intense conversation to have as a child. And anyone with an, uh, any kind of story of being Native American uh, in their family at some point has to come to that realization. You know, there's not a lot of education around that. Um, in our schools still to this day, it's getting better a little bit, but we still have a long way to go. So, you know, being a child and listening to these you know, officers of the law and people that were supposed to know things, um, I really felt a path emerge of self identity. And subsequently, you know, with, uh, of course all of those, the stereotypes and influences of the culture, uh, that led me down a path of self-harm, um, where, you know, drugs and alcohol were always in crime were a part of my life, uh, pretty much my entire childhood and even into my twenties when I was incarcerated. Uh, so it was more of a culture for me, you know, it wasn't like, um, a recreational idea. It was, uh, that whole lifestyle was a way of living a way of identifying. It was uh, a part of me. So when I made a decision to kind of end that cycle of addiction of crime, uh, all of those things, it wasn't just because of my incarceration. You know, I, um, when I was incarcerated, I actually kind of had a very comfortable situation because my dad and my neighborhood had a gang name, mm. you know, and and it was really interesting because I grew up brown in Portland, Oregon, which is one of the whitest cities in America, <laughs> and then white in a little vadio in uh, right outside of Phoenix, which was like a predominantly Chicano or, or you know Mexican American neighborhood yes. uh, with a lot of history of uh, well there was there was a mafia influence, you know Mexican mafia and uh, you know of course a gang influence in that neighborhood so my dad he had a gang name, you know they called all the gangsters in the neighborhood called him Robin Hood mm. uh, because he was you know a professional shoplifter and that 's another thing you know I could kind of educate the audience on here. Um, we have these kind of ideas in our mind you know that are basically media influenced about the way that people support their habit. And we have images of prostitution and, you know, the uh, Pablo Escobar's and the Chapo, you know, Guzman's and, you know, this horrible kind of uh, idea of the way that people that are struggling with mental illness deal with their mental illness and self-medicate. And my parents were what you would call on the street a booster. (laughs) And a booster is a person that shoplifts professionally to support their, their drug habit or whatever habit they have. And they might be, they might have a gambling habit, who knows, you know, or a, a sex habit. You know, I, I don't know exactly all the different parameters of that, or they might just be addicted to, you know, stealing, um, which was something that I witnessed in my parents as well, was this kind of kleptomania? um, And, you know, an idea of generally there's like an underlying theme, you know, and I don't know if this was because my parents came out of the sixties and the whole, you know, cultural revolution. Uh, but yet there was this underlying theme in everything that we did as far as a criminal enterprise, that it was like us against the United States. You know, it was us against the world, you know, it was like this battle, uh, going on So my parents really put it inside of my head that, uh, we don't steal from people. Uh, we don't steal from our family. Uh, we don't cross those lines. Uh, my mom was really against prostitution because she was some, you know, somewhat of, um, an advocate for women. And I, I remember, you know, being around prostitutes, being around bootleggers and drug dealers and, you know, gangsters, bikers, all of that, that whole kind of criminal underworld, uh, my mom would rescue prostitutes and actually bring them into her crew mm-hmm. and teach them how to steal, uh, to shoplift, to support their habit. Yeah, And it was um, kind of a, a Robin Hood mentality, you know, that we were going out and, you know, stealing clothes for kids for their, uh, you know, to go to school. I mean, literally some of the families that we had kind of on our route, uh, in the, in the barrio, they, they basically were, you know, kids that needed school clothes, uh, you know, parents that were working people, you know, that would buy merchandise from us. Uh, and then fences, you know, people who basically all they did was sell stolen merchandise. And then there was the drug element, you know, the drug dealer that would trade drugs for, uh, the stolen merchandise that my parents yes. uh, acquired. And, you know, it just became regular. It was like, I I remember, you know, them even talking about it and saying, oh, we're going shopping, you know? (laughs) And it was like, yeah, you're going shopping, but without money. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the, my parents would go and and shoplift now being a child and being around that, you know, there were times when I was scared, uh, but it was also kind of normalized, you know? And I did really get to see some of the darker places of drug addiction. Um, you know, and being around language at a very early age of like, you know, learning what a trick baby is, you know, like this is like a child that was born to a prostitute and doesn't know their dad. Um, you know, just things like that. Those were my friends, you know, literally like, the, the places that I would go and my mom would drop me off sometimes, you know, they were like on the way there, she would be talking to my stepfather and, you know, saying about, you know, how they're, they're all trick babies over there and things like, you know, just really like, a, like I was sharing like a really yes. different yes. culture of, um, you know, idea. But yet there was this, you know, this place inside that, you know, violence was a part of that existence, but it wasn't like an everyday thing. You know, it wasn't like something where, uh, you know, the people that we, we dealt with were carrying automatic weapons and all of this kind of like uh, fantasizing of, you know, this world of, of drug addiction. Mostly it's just really hurting people, you know, uh, people that maybe went through the loss of a family member or a divorce or, uh, you know, the loss of a child even, and just really didn't have any way to deal with that. Or sexual abuse and trauma. Um, and like I was saying, you know, Reagan, the Reagan era, they cut a lot of money to mental health. Uh, there was, a you know, extreme cuts in the way that the government was re- providing resources. So you have, you know, people out there just trying to live. Um, and that's really where I'm at with my relationship to my parents now, is that I, I don't have any kind of resentment or anger or, anything like that animosity. Uh, actually there's a deep sense of empathy that extends in my current work, uh, with people that are going through the loss of a family member. My mom, you know, like I was sharing, died of a cocaine overdose. Father died of cirrhosis of the liver, uh, caused by hepatitis C. So, you know, myself, I know what it's like to, to learn, to love someone that is active in their addiction Yes, and to like separate the person from the disease uh, which can become very challenging, you know, in a lot of time, really a lot of ways is because our culture has done a really poor job of helping us understand that, you know, we have uh, criminalized our own people. We have persecuted our own people. We've, yes. you know, created this stereotype uh, that is really damaging to communities. And, you know, unfortunately it's spread around the world. You know, there's stuff going on in the Philippines right now that was, based upon, you know, the Reagan tactics, uh, and, you know, and they're even, yeah, it's, it's, it's really appalling to think about, but there is a lot of change going on here, you know, and when that change starts to happen, I do feel like we'll, we'll go in another direction. So yeah, it, uh, you know, that kind of brought me to that place of really thinking about who I am, right? Yes. With all of these cultural influences and all of these things around me, um, and, you know, the sacred seven didn't come into my life a, until a lot later, but the breaking down of the cycles of those generational traumas, the generational addiction, the incarceration uh, that happened, you know, and I can kind of fast forward a little bit to, uh, my incarceration. So yes. I did a three and a half years for selling and distributing, uh, LSD mushrooms and possession of marijuana. Uh, you know, I, I, went to prison for those three substances for three and a half years, uh, which for me, right. And then there's like the history of, of not being able to, uh, I came into the probation department through carry possession of marijuana. And what happened in you know, the nineties, when you would get a possession charge is they would fine you. So, you know, I was struggling just to make ends meet to basically provide for myself. Yes. And now, you know, I have probation fees, right. And I have fees for every time I need to go UA, which is taking a urinalysis. analysis. Mm-hmm. So the stress of that and my home insecurity that I carried in from my childhood trauma, because I wasn't ever put in foster care or put into the state. I was bounced around from family member to family member. I lived in, um, uh, let's see, I went to four, one two, three, four different schools, my eighth grade year. Um, yeah, just, you know, a lot of different family members that would take me in. And because of my post-traumatic stress and my, the mental health issues that I had from watching my mom get beat up by the police, watching her get houses by my dad. So, uh, in my, grandparents and my aunts and everybody and uncles that took me in, Mm -hmm. you know, they were just doing their best. Yes, They didn't have the resources, uh, to deal with it. And, you know, still to this day, I don't really think that we have, um, yes, there's like the faith based solution, right. Going to church. Uh, and then there's the system, which is the psyche, uh, you know, the psychiatrist and the medications, Mm. but there's really nothing in between that. So, um, you know then there still really isn't a lot of resources yes. you know maybe there's some cognitive stuff out there for families now uh but i didn't I definitely didn't get any of that until you know my incarceration so my family was doing their best they were trying to you know just keep me out of out of foster care uh and there were times when you know it was pretty close to me going to foster care but i I was so fortunate that I had you know family that would step up and help out so I, I kind of came into that place of getting that possession charge back in the nineties, you know, having those home insecurities, have medication, basically, Uh, it was really, you know, a plant ally for me. So now the government's telling me that the only thing that I can use to help my anxiety, uh, is illegal. And the only thing that I can use to help me function in the world now and go take a urinalysis. Yeah. So I started, really experimenting with cocaine and with, um, methamphetamine because I knew I had this possession charge and I needed to make my probation fee. So I couldn't, you know, quit my job or anything like that. And I was, you know, night stocking, I was stocking shelves at a local grocery store. Uh, cause I've always been a person that has a really amazing work ethic. Uh, you know, I've always been a person that works really hard. I think I, I got that mostly from my Irish grandmother. Uh, she was, you know, she's, the she's like iron, uh, you know, rags like literally she was like yeah a real really great um person when it came to it. Do you feel any of that
0: was a defense mechanism subconsciously you know, realizing as as a young person you know seeing your environment do you think there was some pushback you know just instinctively uh with with the way i viewed the world yeah, watching you watching your parents struggle, you know, tends to be kind of a, a swing shift from that experience a lot of times. Do you think
1: that that uh Oh, man, I was I was angry, yeah. you know, uh no. it was basically And that's, you know, part of the reason that I I really started selling LSD and and mushrooms was because those were substances that were untraceable by the government. You can't, you know, you can't get a UA to to trace either one of those. And they were kind of, you know, cultural revolutionary uh, substances. So I, yeah. So the probation department was putting pressure on me. Yes. Um, you know, the, I was late for work one day because I had been, you know, partying and and hanging out with my aunt who had a substance abuse problem at the time. And she put this line of methamphetamine down and I was like, okay, you know, and I, uh, did a line of methamphetamine and it was like, Oh, great. You know, now I feel good. I don't feel, um, anxiety. I don't feel, you know, like, uh, cause uh, you know, the post-traumatic stress that I had and I still have a relationship to today. Yes. Uh, it really puts me in a high uh, say, sense of awareness. So if I go into a room and there's a bunch of guys in that room, I immediately start sizing the men up, you know, uh, because of my own fear. I start looking for, yeah. and they could be the greatest guys in the world and just nice guys. And I'll still put myself in that space. And, uh, you know, looking for the the easiest way out of the room. And I've had this my entire life. Uh, you know, the behaviors of barricading and doing perimeter checks and those kind of things, they've kind of subsided over the years. Uh, because I've been able to meet my needs in other ways. Like I've never lived without a roommate, you know, I've never lived without a dog on my own. Um, you know, I just live like I know the things that I need, right. To uh, help get myself through it. At that time, I didn't have those resources. You know, I didn't know like how to cognitively kind of, uh, supplement myself without the use of drugs and alcohol. So when, you know, the substance methamphetamine came into my life, I was like, Oh, great. I can beat my UA with this and I can still, you know, feel good about, you know, going out and being around people. Uh, and it was really, you know, uh, just a dive headfirst into it. And I had really been against using, um, you know, any kind of hard substances and what I mean by hard substances would be like outside of marijuana and alcohol. So marijuana was like that in my family and the way that I grew up around the street, marijuana was a substance that was better for you to use than alcohol. You know, it was like, oh, that guy smokes pot like all the time like oh great he's you know he's a chill guy he doesn't you know he's not going to act crazy if you go out with him or anything like that yeah. but the friends that were drinkers and would drink a lot you know the next thing you know you'd be in a fight with someone uh, you know so it was like yeah I wanted to utilize marijuana and and use it as a substance to help me in my mental illness but it wasn't permitted you know this was still the Clinton this is now the Clinton era which is the crime bill and yes. uh, they were literally marching. Marching, the police were marching through our, our barrio, they would put up signs and they would, they would say crime with an X through it, right? Crime free zone. Yeah. And they would put these metal signs up in our neighborhood and walk through our neighborhood. And the only reason was because it was a lower, you know, Brown neighborhood, really. Uh, they weren't doing that like across the, the street in the more, you know, the newer houses. Mm-hmm. So Phoenix, Arizona is a really kind of interesting place because you have pockets of like really old homes that are primarily, you know, either Native American or Chicano, you know, Mexican-American homes that people have lived in for a long time. And then you have these track homes that develop around it. So unless you know Phoenix, you might be go, going, you know, go from basically $500,000 houses into, you know, a barrio. Mm. Which, you know could be you have a lot of drug use and gangs and everything else, which is like a street. I mean, you cross the street into those neighborhoods, you know, not like a lot of more, um, yeah, I yeah. guess older city, you know, more developed cities. Let me put it that way in the United States, where it takes miles to get to a you know another neighborhood or, yeah,
0: yeah, you you get that kind of convoluted notion, that biased notion of the other side of the tracks or down in the hood
1: is, you know, so often that kind of skewered reference to it. Exactly. So we don't really have that here. You know, uh, it's a little bit different. So yeah. anyway, uh, when the Clinton era came through and they started, you know, that was how I got busted was with these drag nets mm. of, I wasn't even doing anything wrong. I actually was picking a flower. Uh, for a friend of mine and, uh, somebody called the police on me, you know, it was like this heightened state of, uh, craze, you know, just being crazy and the police, you know, searched me, uh, illegally now, you know, I know that, but, uh, Yeah. yeah, they searched me and found that bag of marijuana that started my cycling, Uh, and then started using substances and then it was like, okay, how am I going to pay my probation fees if I don't have a job? So I'm going to sell drugs to pay my probation fees. And then, you know, next thing you know, I'm like, uh, the guy who's known at the Phoenix undergrounds, you know, and, uh, I would go into a rave and to, you know, or to a music festival and the DJs would shout out my name. Yes. I had, uh, you know, an entourage of people around me and doing, you know, big deals like, uh, you know, $10,000 deals, $20,000 deals. And which is a lot for me and for most kind of street drug dealers, Uh, so it was, yeah, it was a progression. And then I ended up getting arrested and going to the very same prison that my father was at, uh, which was like that whole like cycle of addiction manifesting itself. Uh, when I was there, that's when I started questioning things, but it was a state prison and, you know, the creator the universe had another plan for me because in the state system, right. I had this name, I had this recognition, everybody knew me. Yes, So I got like put into an honor part of the dorm where like the guys who were basically running the whole dorm in there acknowledged me and told me that I could have a a bed that was outside of all the other guys, which was like this big thing in there. I mean, little things like that are are really big because this one kid who was living in in that part of the dorm kind of vouched for me uh, and said, I didn't have to move. <laughs> and he turned out to be in a prison gang and ended up not being on that yard for very long because he, he got a uh, sentenced to another charge. Yes. Uh, but yeah, while it was there, it was like, everybody from the street was like, Oh, you know, yes. uh, Eckers here, you know, they would come up to me and, you know, they would try to give me some you know, pot or whatever. I mean, I, I got tattooed in there for free, just like, you know, what it was like, yeah, it was like coming home. You know, it didn't feel scary or anything like that. Yes. Now I had this federal charge. That was my possession of marijuana charge that I needed to to kill that. And I only went and did a couple months in the state because I had a detainer which was my federal indictment for conspiracy with the intent to distribute OSD and conspiracy with the intent to distribute psilocybin mushrooms. So that charge brought me into the fed system. Yes. And I went to a corporate prison first, which is CCA corporate corrections of America, a for-profit institution that was 90% illegal entry. Yes. Even back then, which was, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and it was just filled with people from all over the world, you know, that were there on immigration holds. (laughs) I heard some, some of the, you know, stories that you would not believe this one guy that I was in there with, he, uh, he got a DUI Yes. and in California, he was from Los Angeles. His parents were born in Los Angeles, but they had ties to Tijuana. Now listen to this. This is, this is how bad the system is. His parents were born in L.A. They had ties to Tijuana. This is during the Vietnam era. Wow. They get scared that the United States is going to draft their son as a United States citizen. Yeah. So they go to Tijuana to have their baby so that he has American uh, Mexican citizenship and he can't get drafted into the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. The only time that this guy had ever been in Mexico yeah was when he was born hmm. and it was one of those things that nobody thought about you know he was in LA it was like you know he didn't think about getting his citizenship plus it costs money to get your citizenship and he's out you know drinking beer with you know his his coworkers gets pulled over they run his name and they send him back to mexico <laughs> he has he has wow. a family three kids a wife yeah he's he's been at his job Basically his entire life. He never like yeah. worked anywhere yeah. else and they sent him to Mexico. So now mm. what is he going to do? Right. He's got a cross. So he, he just told me, he said, doesn't matter how long they put me away for. I'm going to keep trying to come back. This is all I know. He didn't even speak Spanish really well. Like it was just, you know, like, I mean, what does the guy have over there? But there's, yes. you know, so many weird stories like that where the system has really failed people, mm-hmm. uh, because it's, you know, again, it's this number and it's not like hearing the, the whole story, uh, biased. idea Oh, exactly. So, you know, I was in there with pretty much, you know, 90% stories like that. And some yeah. cartel members, some, you know, and and some you know soreños and some really hardcore you know guys from you know Mexico that were in gangs in the United States but that was so rare the rest of them were like you know uh, guys that were laborers or had a job at a factory or something like that and had got a dy or mm. you know hadn't paid their child support and got picked up or yeah, you know just yeah. all kinds of like really strange you um, you know, or were involved in a domestic violence situation where people were yelling and their name got ran. Nobody was hurt, you know, nothing like that. Their, their name got ran and they got sent away. Um, all kinds of things like that during that time, Mm. you know, uh, that were happening. And, you know, still, I mean, obviously the country hasn't done very much to help with that, but think about, you know, a corporate correctional facility that houses 90% 90% people from Latin America. How, how, how is that happening? You know, that this corporate prison could be traded on wall street. Yeah. I mean, who, who are the people that own the stock in that? Right. We all know that we, we know they're the same people that are, you know, getting everybody hyped up about immigration Yeah, because that's the majority of their business. Uh, but you know, most of America doesn't know that. So, and then right. The next probably were people from the res because, you know, most Native Americans go into the federal system. And then the, a small portion of it was people that were mail fraud and like stealing mail, things like that. Some kind of identity theft, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, an even smaller percentage were people that were bank robbers. And then a smaller percentage were big time gangsters like the hell's angels was in, was in there. Yeah. And then, and then mm. there were people that got federal indictments because of drugs. I was one of them because the DEA wanted to come down on the rave scene in Arizona. There was a, um, yes, a news article, national news article. And I think it was, it wasn't 60 minutes, but it was something like that uh, where they expose the uh, Arizona underground scene. And uh, because I was kind of caught up in the media of that as a big name, uh, you know, drug dealer, when I was selling LSD and mushrooms, yes. Yes. Uh, they wanted <laughs> to make an example of me and meet a quota.
0: To me, that. Point out the central argument for prison reform, where it shines a light on the biased and lopsided
1: human rights violations, you know, the singling out of indigenous peoples and people of color. But what was very fortunate for me, because in the federal system, it's not like the states. So the state system is ran. On uh, prosecution and numbers in the prisons, so they have a real kind of desire, you know, inside of the institution of incarceration to meet those quotas, because that's how the federal government gives them grants. Uh, it's they're not giving grants on the, the, you know, the numbers of people that don't go back in, yeah. which you would think that the government would incentivize <laughs> them with, you know, some kind of monetary money to put into rehabilitation or to other things like that when we stop and look at these systems it's hard not to see the
0: social and cultural injustices it becomes rather obvious why the imbalance in bias exists it's pretty simple to figure out <laughs> it made money off of what you're doing away with plain and simple
1: exactly so yeah. So the, it, it, you know, if the state of Arizona has more people in prison, then the corrections department gets more money. That's how it is. They don't get more money if they have less people in prison wow. uh, and they're putting money into like, you know, anti-recidivism or helping people out, you know, in integration and all of that. Now the feds, because they're the ones that are allocating the money, they have a responsibility And that was where I was given um, an opportunity to go to a 500 uh, hour drug rehabilitation program. Yes. And that drug rehabilitation program really kind of started changing my cognition. Then I started getting into spirituality. I got away from the state and all the gangs and everything and having a name in there. I came to the feds and I was a very small fish in a very big pond of, uh, people that were doing some really, you know, intense drug dealing and also like celebrities and things like that. You know, I was in there with one of the brothers, uh, Sylvester Stallone's brother was in there, uh, Christian Hosoy who is like this, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. pro skater. Mm-hmm. There's a few people that were in the institution that I was at. So I, I went from CCA, which was that detention facility, maximum security, federal detention facility to Nellis. Now the, another part of that whole cycle, my, my mother, her, my grandfather, Leroy Lindsay, he was a career military guy. Yes. And, uh, my mom was born right at Nellis. <laughs> so like, because my, my grandfather was going through Navy training. Yeah. And yeah. my mom was, uh, born on that air force base. Uh, there's a prison camp at for, at Nellis and I was sent there. So think about how the universe is just showing up so much in my life with all these metaphors. Yes, my dad is, uh, you know, incarcerated at Fort Grant. My mom was born at Nellis. It was like, Andrew, you need to change. And I, I got really, you know, into, how I can change my mind. And when guys were slapping dominoes and playing spades, they had a video library, you know, VCR tapes, uh, where I could listen to, you know, cognitive transformational information and, you know, 500 hours, of drug rehabilitation, nine months, I could never afford that. You know, that's like a Betty Ford visit. I mean, That's like, you know, the state of Arizona was sending me to week, week long programs, blessing blessing in disguise. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I, I started changing my mind and I got really into the Bible. I started fasting and praying. And when I got out, I went directly into ministry work. Uh, and I served at a church for three and a half years. Yes. Uh, and that was a really great time for me. I, um, you know, I had a lot of opportunity there to, uh, help kids out. And I remember there was a young man who came on my bus and he was, he had gone to the bathroom on himself Mm. and, uh, he came and kids were like throwing stuff at him and making fun of him. And he went to the back of the bus and I went back there and I sat down and the kids were all turned around looking at me talking to this kid and they were throwing stuff at us. And I said, Hey, you know, I, I, you know, directed all the kids to Look forward. Now keep this in mind. This is like one of the neighborhoods where I sold drugs, one of the neighborhoods where I did drugs, where I sold stolen merchandise, everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, this neighborhood called Sunny Slope, which is known in Phoenix as one of the worst neighborhoods. When I got there, I got back there and I started taking these kids on the bus. They were, they were me. You know, this young man, I'm I'm going and I'm sitting down next to him. And I, you know, I start asking him, you know, is your your mom in jail? Is she in prison? And he just keeps his head down. And I said, my mom was in in jail. My mom was in prison. You know, um, are you being raised by an aunt or a a grandma? He just keeps his head down. And I, and I said, you know, when I was a little boy, I was scared to go to the bathroom too. Mm. And he just looks up at me and his, you know, his face is all dirty. And he just sees tears, you know, these tears, dirty little muddy tears start falling down. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to take you and get you cleaned up, yeah. you know, and we're going to get you some clean clothes. Okay. And I said, you know, uh, and I get emotional talking about it because it was just, uh, it was so intense because it was as if God was giving me that opportunity to love myself. Yes. Yeah. You know, as a little yeah. boy and to share that there is hope, you know, that you can make it, that you can do something with your life. Um, and those three and a half years that I spent in that ministry were, amazing. We went from having three kids on the bus to having, uh, two buses running about 150 kids. Um, you know, and all kids from some different kind of, you know, issue in their lives. And, you know, I see their little faces as I'm talking about them. Uh, and I ended up fostering some kids, um, taking them in and raising a little boy for five years from that, uh, fostering this little, little boy. And Yeah. It was an amazing experience. Uh, and then, you know, I went through a divorce and that's when I started kind of questioning my faith and started questioning Christianity. Yes. Uh, and that led me to a place where it was very scary as a person who is an addict, uh, because, you know, I do feel that a lot of the issues that I had with substances were spiritually related, emotionally related. Um, And when I was in that crisis of faith, there were times when I was really, you know, on the razor's edge of going into a relapse, um, you know, I didn't have really the skills that I needed to, I didn't have a community. Mm -hmm. And fortunately I found native American connections, which is a drug and alcohol treatment facility. And, uh, I started going to sweat lodge. And it was amazing because it was like the first time in my life I began to express, you know, being native American. Yeah. And I started questioning it, you know, inside of my life, I started questioning, you know, well, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to be mm-hmm. Apache? What does it mean to be native? Uh, and, you know, inside of that time, I also began drumming again. Yes. Uh, and I'm a trained drum circle facilitator, which sounds really Kind of uh, interesting, um, and maybe people are like, "What do you mean? Like what they do at the beach, you know, and uh, what they do at the park?" And it's, <laughs> you know, it's ki- kind of that, um, primarily we work in hospitals and drug treatment facilities and places like that. So I was yeah. doing that business. I was actually just coming out of mm. um, a carpet cleaning business that I owned, uh, carpet and floor maintenance and the handyman work that my uh, wife and I developed. Yes. And, uh, you know, as we got divorced, she had some major substance abuse and mental health issues, which, you know, it was that whole cycle of, uh, you know, my childhood coming forward and it just, I couldn't maintain it uh, any longer. And that's why, you know, that we ended that relationship. She was hospitalized like five times. So it was, just too much for me. And the final draw was when she pulled a knife on me and stabbed my drum. Uh, I was like, I can't take this anymore. So I got out of that, went through the crisis of faith, uh, found patina wellness center, started going to sweat, started praying, started learning to sing. And I, I met many mentors in there. Glenn Justy. He's an autumn man from the, uh, Akmel the river people. um, Teddy Begay, who is a Benet, yeah. um, I would, I would call him a medicine man. I would call both of them medicine, men. Um, and you know, uncle Ted, he, he would say, you know, first learn to, to, uh, pray, then learn to sing, then learn to talk. And, uh, that's how it kind of happened for me. You know, and I spent about a decade, uh, going to sweat twice a weeks sometimes. Yeah. And showing up at the drug treatment facility, talking to the men in there, uh, talking to the women, talking about my story, uh, really found a place where my medicine began to form. Yes. And in that time, I also, like I said, I was facilitating at hospitals. Mm. Well, there's a hospital on the Navajo reservation called Fort defiance. Uh, it's a Fort defiance hospital. I, I, mm. the name is in the traditional language and it's really challenging for me to say, Yes, uh, but it's basically up in the kind of four corners area. And I went to that hospital right outside Fort Defiance, and I did a drum circle as a part of this healers conference. So all these healers came from all over the world to learn from the Diné. Now the Diné, uh, the Navajo people, they're very similar to Apaches. Yes. Uh, we have a very similar language and and similar traditions even. Uh, so I knew that there was something there for me, very powerful. And I sat down in a Hogan and. I heard elders introduce themselves for the first time and it was like, chills came up my back, you know? And I, I was like, what is that? What does that mean? Uh, and then, you know, I started learning that that was who you are, that your ceremonial introduction is calling to your ancestors. It's yeah. calling to the, the directions it's grounding yourself. It, and even, you know, in this ceremony, in this traditional Hogan, I was invited there by a man named Fillmore Bluehouse, yes. who is an amazing man that does all kinds of work in recovery and helps people heal and everything. And um, yeah, some of the elders, that was the only thing they wanted to do was just introduce themselves. They didn't want to say anything. They just wanted to, to say who they are and have that spiritual kind of application of themselves to the, the circle. So that really started me on this path of praying with that. And what I mean praying with it is, uh, is sitting there and meditating on it. You know, I go into the sweat lodge and I was like, I want to learn how to introduce myself. So I, I first learned how to introduce myself in, um, English and I called in my ancestors, just like I did at the beginning of this program. And I did that for a lot of years. And then I was like, I felt this urge and I I said, I want to decolonize my mind. You know, I want to learn how to introduce myself in my traditional language. Yes. And that was a big thing for me because I I had practiced it and practiced it. And, you know, it was so kind of, um, foreign to me, uh, you know, and yeah, yeah, that's your story. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And Mm. when I made the decision that I was going to introduce myself in front of the the elders at, you know, my home sweat lodge, traditional language, uh, I was like, oh, they're going to laugh at me. You know, they're going to make fun of me. And, oh man, I get so emotional. Cause I'm like back in that space, you know, I got to really kind of hold the tears back because, uh, nobody laughed at me. You know, nobody said I was less than an Indian or anything like that, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. And it was a big moment for me, you know, it was like, wow, I felt like that was the first time that I felt like I could, I could be native. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this culture, you can be anything in the United States you want to be, you know? And I think it's, um, you know, uh, a very powerful quote, um, from Russell means he says, you know, you and he was a leader of the aim movement, the American Indian movement in the 60s. 16- Seventies, he says, you could be anything in this this country that you want to be, except Native American. Yes, you know, uh, really, mm. yeah, right. We're we're really like uh, what an irony. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're you're in yeah. your
0: native country, your native land, connected to your native roots, but you can't be that. You know, that's that's a whole nother political conversation we could go down but
1: just the irony of that yeah and uh you know like i said if you have a story of being native american how do you express that because there are so many people out there that have a story of being native even have their tribal identity uh but yet really don't feel comfortable expressing you know their culture or showing up in any kind of way of being native there's Um, there's a lot of trauma around the way (laughs) the united states of course you know has, uh, the longest lasting war in American history has been the American Indian war, but yet. Yeah. You know, you couldn't be any more American yeah. in any way. Uh, <laughs> and you know, you like Ugh. just the way that the, you know, you go on CBS or NBC and they start talking about Afghanistan being the longest war. Yeah. And yeah. that for me is, is, uh, again, this idea of not owning the genocide, not owning you know, I mean, I would love it if one newscaster someplace said, you know, the second longest lasting war in American history is the Afghanistan war. The longest lasting war in American history is the American Indian War. Um, you know, people just don't know that. I mean, I go into the Yeah. Basically still being held as prisoners of war. Exactly. And uh, right
0: back to the root of the very initial war. Yep. <laughs> yeah that's a conversation I'd love to dive down at another time and and pick apart you know going through this upcoming year for me I want to move more into these kind of spiritual in depth looks and views at who and what we are at our essence what is the true light inside of all of us mm. you know and how are those lights being misappropriated or dimmed or smothered in this case you know we're completely
1: smothering that light oh it's so beautiful you know of an entire truth yes and you know for me right that takes a lot of courage uh to even want to go there you know myself right i have this uh i have this ability to show up in the world as a white guy You know, I can be like, people have told me like, Mm. Oh, you know, I didn't even know that you had native in you. I thought you were Italian or Mexican, you know, or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I can, I can show up in that way and I can like live Mm. without acknowledging, you know, my, my heritage and just be another american yeah you know yeah. and uh just be or be a job i i you know i have an interesting job i, I which in and of itself is you are yeah. and all of that's <laughs> the original american yeah, and all that's cool you know it's all that's great uh, and for you jeffrey you know being like you know a uh, a european american and you know yeah, German yeah descent. being in that space yeah. of you know, looking at your identity and also having the courage to, to talk to a person like me, you know, it really shows yeah. that you are willing to unpack some of these conversations that hurt, you know, it hurts to think about. Uh, I mean, one of the things that, that really gets to me, I have a video on my YouTube channel mm. of being in the national forest, looking at this sign that says voices of the past. Yes. And I'm sitting there and it has this picture of this Neanderthal looking person. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, and it says the Athabascan language was spoken here. That's my language. Yes. And I, you know, I think about this, like I'm looking at this sign that says I am a thing of the past, the national government, the federal government of the United States has put this sign in front of me. Mm -hmm. And I took a video and I said, And I introduced myself in the traditional language and I I said, this is about surviving. Yes. (laughs) You know, this is about us surviving here because the pen is mightier than the sword. Yes. You know, they can write us off basically by doing this kind of thing. And a lot of Americans don't even know that we exist. You know, there's a population of people out there that think native Americans are a thing of the past. Yes. Uh, So You know, it is great to come on here and educate people. And I would love to come back. Yeah.
0: Uh, We're we're dipping our toe into those notions of colonization, those notions of bias, those notions of just outright genocide, that any and all of those things could be explored with a, a deeper understanding and by shining
1: a brighter light on them. For sure. And I would love for you know, moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas to get a free copy of my book. And for families to, you know, people have done their DNA, they've done, you know, they've gone on 23andMe and Ancestry, but yet they're like, how do I incorporate that into my life? You know, what do I do with that information? Well, this technology, and I'll call it a technology because it is uh, an ancient form of mental health and Mm -hmm. self-identity, you sitting, you know, imagine like with me, this idea of you sitting around a, a fire in your backyard or in your favorite camping place, or maybe your family has a cabin someplace and your granddaughter, you know, looks up from the fire glowing in her eyes and she says, I am the, the granddaughter of Jeffrey Besecker, you know, and what that would mean for you, you know, what would that mean for your brothers and sisters? If it was your nieces and nephews or, yes. you know, and what, what would it mean for that little girl, right? To know that she is somebody before anybody asks her, what are you going to be when you grow up? And she thinks that she's not enough. Mm-hmm. Or before the world tells her that she's genetically flawed or that she's culturally this or culturally that. You know, um, there's just so much that we can help each other with if we can understand these indigenous technologies. And believe me, there was a time in our German heritage, and I can say our German heritage because I'm German (laughs) too, when our Germanic ancestors sat around the fire yeah. and they didn't say that they were uh, a smith or a parson or a you know any of these ideas of jobs uh they said that I am the son of and I am the grandson of and I am the grandchild or the grand, you know the the child of yeah. and we're from these lands and you know that was an idea of self identity based around land and ancestral knowledge and ancestral wisdom and you know when you hear me introduce myself, it's like very fluid and people are challenged because they're like, I don't even know those people. Well, you should, <laughs> you know, I mean, you should know your family. And if you don't know your family, bring somebody in that you consider an adopted member of your family, because that person has given to you, has sown into your life, has been a mentor for you. Fabric of and community. when you're sitting around the yeah community. Yes, exactly. And in in our traditions, from what I'm taught, if you don't know how to introduce yourself, you're called abandoned Mm. and abandoned, not in the way of like you have done anything wrong, but abandoned in the way of the community needs to support you. You need to have an adopted mom an adopted dad an adopted grandma. Somebody needs to step up and be a part of your sacred seven Mm. because that foundation for your identity is more important than anything in the community is that you have that wholeness. And, you know, if I think about what it would be like in our ancestry for my ancestors, my native American ancestors to meet my German American, my Irish American ancestors and my European ancestors, the first thing that they say is, you know, I'm a job. My name is Andrew and I'm a drummer. Yeah. You know, when when did uh, we
0: deviate into that whole (laughs) thing? You know, that to me has always been confounding how we've adopted that generationally as our identity we're we're identified not by who and what we are at our core as people but by what task we do what service we provide to other a lot of times it's not even based on being of a service to other we base our relevancy on that notion of we're only
1: valuable because we perform this work There's so much to that because that can be taken by your boss, right? If your boss says that you're no longer valuable. It's not even truly yours. Yeah, exactly. Your education is another one. The institution owns your education. (laughs) They they own your doctorate paper. Mm. They own your degree. And, you know, for me, like if you look at this as a whole, this goes back to the way wars were waged because in the European landlord system, which were the only people that could have identity associated with the land. Mm. They, they were the ones who were earthlings because they owned the lands. And these were the, literally the Lords of the land. So if I'm the Lord of the South and I want to go to war with the Lord of the East, I need to go to either the Lord of the West or the Lord of the North and ask them for money to support my, my conflict. And the way that I did that was with my lands. I have the land from these mountains to this river. That I can barter against. And right, this is where that identity comes in Mm. of a job. So, if you, you know, this is where we start to see the smith and the parson and the knight and the sower and the farmer and all of these names that are synonymous with job titles. So, I would take my ledger of I have 50 smiths, I have 50 knights, I have, you know, 25 parsons, I have 150 farmers. And I would take that ledger to the the king that I was wanting to borrow money from, and we he, those people would wait, you know, be able to borrow against the identity of their people. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward to <laughs> today, and we call this a social security number. Yeah, and it's not basically your job; it's the amount of money you've earned, because that's how f- governments and the IMF and the World Bank yeah. and all of these organizations. You know, it's the analytics of that that are associated with the ability of a country to borrow. So, you know, what I mean, if if the dollar right, if our people are earning more money, Mm -hmm. but getting less for the money in the internal system on the global system, it looks better, right? Yes, it looks better because now the United States has more possibility to borrow money. And who do we borrow money from now? We borrow money from China you know, and, and we borrow money from other foreign governments. And the reason that we're able to do that is because of the same system that was set up in the patriarchal dominant world of, of Europe. Yes. That's, that's why we have social security. Now, so, you know, like if that answers that question inside of your head, like, of why do we identify ourselves in that way? Why do we evaluate? Because it's a systemic yes. issue, <laughs> and as we get back to remembering our Earth inheritance, what it means to be an Earthling, what it means to be valuable innately, you know, those there there those of us that go out into the wilderness, and when we look at a mountain we don't think to ourselves, oh, that mountain is great, but it would be more valuable if it had a hotel on it. You know, there's those of us that are losing,
2: right? Most
1: of us, yeah. And, you know, there are some, uh, some out there who do. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. But yet I feel like the numbers are changing, yeah. you know, rapidly. And we're, we're getting to a place where we're, we're starting to see, like, the innate value inside of us. And relationally, this is important as well. Because I wanna know, you know, more about you. I wanna know, you know, where you come from, where your ancestors come from. I mean, how cool is it to think about yeah. you know, I would love to hear your introduction if you feel comfortable introducing yourself.
0: back up. Let me let me put a little thought in this, and this is where is is pretty easy. Ninety percent of my genealogy is tied to Germany. And so how long have they I roughly how, how long have you been here? Eighteen, I think twenty eight. I Think is when the family migration started here. Both sides, ironically, both sides of my family mother, father, mother Karen Cook, further back, uh, you know, on that side, Karen Cook, father Ronald Biesecker, um, grandmother
1: Winita Fair. Is this your mother's mother or your father's mother's mother? Okay, grandmother Winita Fair. Okay, um grandfather earl fair on my mother's
0: side we go patriarchal because i know you nod to the patriarchal side yeah um grandmother grandfather on oh wait no i was sorry that was my father's patriarchal ah
1: I see i'm I'm already off let me take you through it (laughs) okay so so (laughs) tell me your name so jeffrey b secker okay where were you born i was born greenville ohio Nice. Now tell me your mom's name. Hi, Karen Cook. Okay. And now your father's name. Ronald B. Sacker. Okay. And now your mother's mother. Mother's mother, Edith Wood. Where
0: was she born? I gotta think on that one. Uh, where? Uh,
1: I lost that one. Uh, Indiana, I think. Okay. Somewhere. And now your father's mother. Do you know her? Her name. Father's mother. Yeah, we need a Bsecker. Okay. Uh it was actually we need a fair. Awesome. Okay. So now your mother's father. Mother's father Robert Cook. Okay. And your father's father. Father's father Ber- Verlin Bsecker. And were they Indiana and Ohio? Is that where they were both Indiana and uh, see uh, father's mother
0: born in Kentucky. Ah um grandfather born just stitch fix from here small town called Pleasant Hill and where are you at right now you're in uh I am in Greenville Ohio oh nice sure. okay no didn't didn't stray too far from my progenity here yeah <laughs> spent a few, a few years Sorry. in a couple towns over and then came back and have been here since uh So your mother's father,
1: where was he born, do you know?
0: Mother's father was born in Union City, Ohio, or Union City, Indiana. Small town that sits right on the Indiana-Ohio border. Literally half of the town is Indiana, the other half is in Ohio. He was born on the Indiana side. Very cool. uh, And literally the town is Union City, Indiana, Union City, Ohio.
1: Any... um, So... Interesting. Any relation to the famous explorer Cook? I'm not sure about that. I'll have to look. There's a good chance of that. Good chance of that. Wow. Yeah, you're. You know, you know more than most Americans. To be
0: honest, I, I can go even deeper than that. I can go back four generations wow. on my mother's side,
1: three on my father's. So your mother's mother's uh, how many? How many mothers' mothers can you go back? Mothers' mothers. I go more
0: back on the mother's father's on my mother's side, on the cook side, right off the top of my head. you know, And I can't recall name for name for name right now, but I know with my mother does genealogy. Oh, that's fantastic. So, you know, over the last 20 years, she's taken that up on a hobby and now does it professionally. Oh, very cool. Working for the local genealogical society. We have, you know, through the process, she's went back and tracked all the way back, both sides of the family, my mother's side, my father's side, all the way back to Germany, and back to the original two on each side that came here to you know the United States, Ellis Island, from Germany. Now going back to Germany, I think she can go back three generations in Germany on. The cook side of the family.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Most, most Americans really, you know, what I found is that they, especially younger generations really struggle with their sacred seven, uh, putting them together. And, you know, also within a lot of people struggle with the matriarchal sides, like whether it be from their father or from their mother. Um, Mm. and in our system, it's actually, those are the people that you, yeah, you are or your mother's, uh, which y- y- makes sense because I mean, that's the womb you came from. Yeah. You know, um, I can go back. My mother's mother is Elba Gallegos, her mother, Crescencia, uh, Alvarez, her mother, Crescencia Fiero. Yes. That's about as far as I can go back on my mother's mother's side. Mm. Um, and you know, on my yeah mother's father's side, it's totally lost. Like, uh, Sarah Lindsay is the only one, and I don't even know her maiden name. I, I haven't been able to get that. It's like, uh, you know, really. Only reason I know more about my mother's mother's side is because that's my strong Apache line, and I have, you know, kind of documentation because of my enrollment with, yes. you know, pursuing my enrollment, uh, which is a whole other conversation we can have about the way, you know, tribal enrollment works. But on my father's you know, my father's mother, Evelyn Beatty, mm. there is information out there and I just have not researched it, but I know that we go back to Northern Ireland yes. and to the orange Irish, of uh, which are basically like the Protestant Irish oh, wow. of Northern Ireland, who sided mostly with the King of England, yeah. uh, But we also came over here and fought in the Revolutionary War. So our ties to Ireland are really clannish ties that are, you know, fortified uh, through the American Irish experience, Uh, which there's a whole other conversation there with, you know, St. Patrick's Day and the way that the Protestant Irish showed up in that experience. So, yeah, you're you're. You know, you're <laughs> more, you have more understanding of yourself than most people. Yes. Yes. It's
0: so interesting to look back over the course of my family history and how it's remained so communal. It makes sense why I can feel such a great sense of my own identity, not only myself, but my history when I look at that. Because it hasn't become so divided. It's been ever presence Now, not in a domineering way for me. I don't see it as a domineering view of because I have this relation. My society, my history pushes to the forefront, but it is that relation to it. But it's interesting to look. You know, we moved from Germany to Ellis Island. From Ellis Island, both sides of the family migrated instantly to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Hmm. From Carlisle, Pennsylvania, they moved to Kentucky around the northern Kentucky border, Kentucky, Indiana. Wow. From there, they moved to the Dayton, Ohio area and then pushed a little further north to here in the Greenville, Ohio area where we're at and just another town over, another step over right on the border of Indiana into the Union City. Actually, when they moved From the Dayton, Ohio area here, they established a settlement that's now known as German Township because there was such a strong migration of that German community here. And literally, you know, just, just, what was it, two weekends ago, three weekends ago, driving through that area with my fiance and saying, you know, as we pass through these little Small burgs that literally, you know, are barely even existing towns. You know, five, six, eight houses, and going past these small eighteen hundred cemeteries and saying, "I have relatives there. <laughs> I have a great grandfather in this cemetery." And she's looking at me and she's like, "That's nuts." And I said, "But it's not like Kentucky. She grew up. You know, her history is predominantly in Kentucky, where the entire community literally they have
1: a family plot." Mm. So it's, you know, what, what comes for for me when you mention Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and again, this is like, you know, one of the ways that the sacred seven works is that it gives you these connection points in the audience. Yes. Right. You, you feel like, Oh, okay. I'm a grandson. You know, I'm a grandchild. I'm a grand, you know, I'm a child. Right. So we have that immediate connection to one another, which causes empathy. You know, there's em- empathy that comes through like for me, right. When you mention your ancestors coming to Carlisle immediately, I think about the boarding school in Carlisle. Yes. Um, which I don't know if you've investigated that at all to see if your grandparents worked at the, the boarding school. Um, if that's something that your family has ever unpacked, but that was the flagship.
0: I know there's um, a connection there. Yeah. I know there's that's a connection.
1: Intense. That's intense. I can intense tell you that
0: from stories. Really? Yeah. Wow. That there's a connection. Oh, man. I can't recall right off the top of my head exactly how, but I can remember conversation with my mother, my grandmother about that history and you know
1: that coming through. Man, that is really intense. You know, there would be like as a I mean, there could be like some ceremony done around that, you know, like some prayers and some ceremony because Mm. your, your ancestors being a part of like, what was like, like a horrific experience for many native American children, Mm. uh, at the Carlisle boarding school. Like just, it's just a really powerful experience for us to connect, you know, because, um, that, that whole, like, it was like the flagship for what led to, um, a huge amount of trauma in the native American community. Yeah. So that is, uh, that's really powerful. You know, that you know about your ancestors, you know, I don't even know what to do with it. Like I would like to talk to somebody like, uh, you know, a medicine man about that because it's one I'll have
0: to go back and unpack with my mother and, and, find out you know i i've got access to track those things you know through her system of genealogy through her connections there you know i know large swaths of of history and lineage she's tracked down you know we're we're also sitting here in this hotbed of native american history general anthony wayne Mm -hmm. you know this whole frontier that whole opening to you know was right here literally two miles from where i'm sitting right now wow amazing yeah you know i've always sat with that i've always felt that medicine Mm -hmm. of that i feel by and large that's why i've always felt this fabric of challenging the biases because it's been right here that energy that spirit Has been right here where I was born, where I was birthed. It's always been present to me and I've always known that. And in that, you know, I've always felt the injustice of it. I've always felt the human indignity of it. Just recently, this summer, when we were attending, you know, the local Black Lives Matter demonstration, you know, whatever you want to call it, great irony because where everybody is congregating to fight back and say, you know, we want an equal voice for all peoples in the very background. I'll send it over to you. Was the sign, you know, honoring the fact that general Anthony Wayne and the treaty of Greenville was signed here. I'm saying, you know, it stood out to me, you know, it stood out that we were like, we were the Genesis. Spit out the word here. We were the genesis of that whole colonial notion. Mm, Powerful, you know. Was the final push that basically sealed the fate of the Native American community, as far as that's you know regarded and concerned.
1: Wow. Yeah, that um, that's so powerful to think about and. Still to this day, there are so many monuments that people just look over and really have no understanding, historical understanding. I mean, there's the, Mm. you know, the Civil War stuff, right, where people, um, you know, look at those things and they're like appalled by them because of the of the slavery, which is, you know, they they have like every notion, of course. You know, I I second that. Um, And, you know, you have patriots or so-called patriots from the American Indian war, um, where you, you have the same sort of idea. There's a massacre that happened here. Uh, it was a conflict up on the Mogollon rim yeah. where the Tonto, um, Apaches were killed. And there's a plaque there that has every cavalry soldier's name on it. But it has no Native American, a single Native American. Yeah, no, I'm not getting the acknowledgement. It's just like- I do have
0: the acknowledgement. You know that Tecumseh was here, literally a mile and a half away, half a mile from where the other site is. You know, there's at least the acknowledgement
2: mm-hmm.
0: that there was an existence, but no honoring
1: of the fallen. Mm-hmm. And that's that bias, that colonialization. Yeah. And for me, right. When I introduce myself and I say I come from the land of the Multnomah in Portland, Oregon, that's that voice crying from the bottom up. Right. And this is an important topic here because you're taking personal responsibility. And I feel like there are so many others that can step up and take personal responsibility for that. Now, how does that look? Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, uh, when you introduce yourself at a PTA meeting and you say, you know, my name is Andrew Ecker and I'm, you know, I want to honor the Akmal Atam, you know, the, the ancestral, uh, lands that we're on right now, yeah. you know, I, and if I'm in, um, whatever place I'm at, I have done my, my due diligence, before I speak yeah. to honor those indigenous people. And hopefully one day we have a sign that says, Welcome to Phoenix, Arizona, the ancestral land of the Akma Yeah. You know Akmahana. And now is that now how is that related in the colonial
0: colloquialism of it? You know, Acmahana, what tribe or band of
1: people would that be related? to? Oh, so there, yeah. So autumn, I believe is the name for people mm. and Akmel is river to the so, river. People. It's like, you know, in us, like Apaches, we have in which means yeah. people, mm-hmm. it just means the people. That's all it means. Like we didn't really yeah. have like an, uh, like an idea of our name did start segregating. Ironically, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the way that, that's, what's always fascinated me about your culture. Yeah. It's a really beautiful thing. So, yeah. you know, for me, right. When we get to that idea and that notion of, you know, what would it be like if you drove into LA and it said, welcome to Los Angeles, yeah. the ancestral land of the Tongba, yeah. you know, or if you drove into Portland and it said, welcome to Portland, Oregon, the ancestral land of the Multnomah and the Clackamas"? you know, like what, like how beautiful that would be and how much of yeah. a decolonization would happen in our minds when we began to learn the, uh, indigenous roots of the current contemporary civilization. And we began to honor it. And again, you know, that personal responsibility is one that's really pragmatic, right? We can, we can do it ourselves just by, Mm. by learning those things about who we are, you know, and, uh, for us. And if you think about when Deb Holland got on and she did her, you know, acceptance speech of being the nominee of the uh, secretary of the interior, Mm. she utilized her, ancestral wisdom. She, you, she first of all acknowledged the ancestral lands that she was on everything that I'm talking to you is something that as indigenous people, the sensitivity to that conversation is apparent. Like we, we are people that do that, but that doesn't mean that that's cultural appropriation for you know European Americans to do that. That means learn from us you know, like learn the simplicity of having opposite, it's yeah. actually the exact opposite of cooperation. It's cultural yeah. acknowledgement, which, I mean, happened on CNN, who is supposedly this, you know, like liberal kind of, you know, forward thinking um, news broadcast, black, white Americans vote for this, black Americans vote for this, Asian Americans vote for this. And then there's something else, like literally. Yeah. Like there was all kinds of memes that came out in you know uh, Native American social media about that. Even a friend of mine, he sang a song. He was like, "Yesterday I woke up, you know, uh, uh Native American, <laughs> and today I'm something <laughs> else." Hey, uh, hey, uh, mm. hey uh, you know, like uh, yeah, it's uh, because that's how we deal with things. We joke about it, you know, but. Right in that conversation, mm-hmm. we're not just something yeah. else. Like we, yeah. we have a voice here. Like, how do we begin to incorporate that? Wouldn't that be great if we had, mm-hmm. you know, kids standing up and doing the Pledge of Allegiance and the teachers saying yeah. we want to acknowledge the ancestral lands of, you know, like how cool would that be? Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, every city in the United States yeah. has an ancestral connection. Those people may be removed from that land, you know, but that doesn't mean that they're not living there. You know, there's still like, you know, we're, there's Apaches living here in Phoenix. We've lived and roamed this land for since the dawn of cultural identity. You know, um, just because the people don't have, a building on that land or some kind of plaque saying that it's their land doesn't mean that they're not a connection. And this is again, the earth-based wisdom, right? Like stepping out of the colonial mindset and stepping into the (laughs) earth-based knowledge system. And, you know, ultimately we're all indigenous. Like this is our only home. Wake up people, right? You are the air, the water, the fire, the earth you know, and your ancestors have been here, you know, trying to make their best way. Yes, Maybe this conversation is a part of that evolution of us coming to a place of greater understanding, greater knowing. Are we going forward or going back and reconnecting with our center? You know, it's Sacred Seven. We're going to that below and reconnecting. I mean, obviously we're going forward, right? I mean, think about Deb Holland being the First Native American secretary of the interior where that office was used to genocide. Let's look at that. Let's break it down. I did a little bit of my
0: background on it. Oh, yeah. Sacred Mm -hmm. seven, you know, everything that exists Mm -hmm. is in a directional manner, north, south, east, west, up, down and center. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes. Yes. And that's one of the things. Relay us and, and connect me from there. Connect me from there.
1: So when you start, a, you know, if you're involved in a ceremony and, you know, it could be any kind of ceremony, really, um, you know, your, your child's birthday, even yeah. right. When you do that introduction and you connect to your sacred seven, mm-hmm. you're expanding your consciousness into seven directions. Now there's traditional prayers that in the, in the contemporary language are called the beauty way, yeah. beauty above beauty, below beauty, beside beauty in front, beauty behind beauty within. And this is also a part of our sacred seven. When I say, my name is Andrew Acker, that's my inside space. When I call upon my mother, this is mother earth, the below space. I call upon my father. This is the above space, right? The East, my mother's mother, the South, my father's mother, Mm. the West, my mother's father and the North, my father's father. Now what our ancestors knew about this kind of idea of expanding ourselves with our introduction yes you know there's metaphors to everything in spirituality and the more that you sit with something the more that you pray with something the more that it will reveal itself to you Mm -hmm. and that directional call is another layer of the sacred seven you know expanding your consciousness into all seven directions what does that mean right if we have a situation or circumstance come into our life like let's say uh, we're going through a breakup. Well, on one side, you know, one direction, we see ourselves as like this person who is incompatible, you know, we're, we're no longer loved. We're no longer connected. We're not a husband anymore. We're not a wife anymore. Yes. You know, we're not a boyfriend. We're not a girlfriend anymore. That's only one direction though. You know, just that one direction where we see kind of that, that bitter kind of idea. But then in another direction, we can see ourselves as free. You know, as sovereign, now we've made a decision for ourselves to get out of this relationship, you know, and all of the directions have a different way of viewing that situation or circumstance. Yes. The reason that the, I believe that the ancestors prayed the beauty way prayer was so our consciousness would be in all seven directions. So no matter what came through, it was already beautiful you know so when i expand myself into to ceremony and i i open up with my introduction yes i'm now connected consciously to all seven directions you see in in a way of of bringing about the totality of the experience and this is what the creator has shown to me through my prayer with the sacred seven you know these things too you know i'm I'm not here saying that this is, you know, every single Apache person, every single person that utilizes a, a ceremonial introduction has the same revelation from it. You know, this is my revelation that I brought to the world about this experience of ceremonial introduction. And it's been my responsibility to carry it. You know, that's why I try to come on podcasts. I try to help kids, you know, out there that are struggling with who am I, you know, um, that maybe are seeing themselves from one hyper point of view, you know, in my life, I was, you know, a felon. I was a drug addict. I was a criminal from one point of view, you know, until I expanded my consciousness and I started to really ignite the light inside of myself, right. From different points of view, I started to see these other sides of myself. And through that, I started to live in an optimal way. Mm. I started to grasp like, what does it mean to have effortless manifestation in my life? What does it mean to have vulnerable, intimate relationships. What does it mean to look at the mountain and see my grandma, you know, to see my grandpa, you know, how does it to to live in relationship with the hawk, the Eagle, the bear, the wolf, you know, all of my relations like that. And then also to allow myself permission to feel empathy, Mm. you know, for all my relatives, regardless of their color, their sexual orientation, their religious ideas, any of those things. I don't really, you know, I'm just going to show up in the wholeness of how I can serve. Yes. And, you know, if I can serve you and help you by sharing, you know, some of the struggles I've been through in my life, then you know what? I'm blessed to have gone through those those struggles. I'm blessed to have that medicine in my life. And that's really what the the Sacred Seven has granted me. And what I hope for every person that comes into, you know, gets a free copy of the book or buys a copy of the book or takes one of our courses or Works with me as a you know as a guide through the process. All of it. It's like I just want them to understand themselves, <laughs> you know. And I think that that's what is where our power is, Jeffrey, is in ourselves. You know, where would you be without those stories of your ancestors? You know, yes. What would it, you know when everything else is gone? Right when all the accomplishments are gone. When you're, <laughs> you know, when you're around your mom and your mom doesn't really you know, uh, or your, your grandmas and your grandpas and they they'll celebrate your accomplishments, but they want to hear the stories, you know, they want to know those things, whether the intimate relationships in your life, it's all about a story. And so that's where the value is in this, you know, and it's something that's simplistic, right. But so profound, um, yeah, I just get so much joy and excitement, um, in sharing it. So that's it. True
0: nature in yourself. Is the true nature in all things? You know, we're living in balance
1: and harmony. Yes, that idea of balance and harmony is something that goes back to, and what comes forward for me is this idea of relationship. Right? How do I live in relationship to my own mm-hmm. feelings? You know, my own um, cycles of of understanding the process of being in relationship again. Uh, living out of relationship is lonely and it's painful and it's, it's, you know, it it is something that, uh, leads to, you know, destruction. I mean, it's, uh, I feel that the reason why so many of the issues we're having right now are because of us living out of relationship and harmony and balance comes from understanding that you mend the hoop. When you show up, you mend the circle. Mm. You're the medicine that we've been waiting for. (laughs) You know, your authenticity, your vulnerability, everything that you have is a part of us creating a better world. And when we do that, there's more than enough to go around. Yes. You know, the scarcity, all of the illusion, the confusion, it just all dissolves and we can solve the problems that we have we can mm-hmm. uh clean the air clean the water we can live in peaceful coexistence we can educate children we can you know live in an optimal way of really remembering you know there's there's something in us that's wild and doesn't fear doesn't like separate itself from nature you know there's there's that part of us that's incorruptible and i feel like uh, the sacred seven mm. initiates that in a certain way of the memory coming forward of what does it mean to be an earthling? And then once I understand that I'm connected to this totality, yeah. uh, that I'm a member of the who, mm-hmm. then I want to share that. And I want to start changing culture. I want to bring my, my family to that place of, you know, recognizing who they are. That's as you say, powerful medicine. Uh, Does medicine do?
0: It heals. Hmm. It mends. I want to thank you for sharing that powerful medicine with us. Oh, uh, thank you! <laughs> and I know we went a little <laughs> bit over our time. We did, but yeah. you know this is great. Yeah, you know, when the the message is flowing, you let the voice speak. Awesome. You know, first what are the steps? You know, first we is it is it drum? No, we pray. First we pray, right? Yes. Then we sing. Yes. Then we speak. Uh, nice, man. Let it speak, brother.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, well, much love to you, bro. And, uh, you know, I, um, if you're open to much it, I can say to a little you. blessing here before we go. Yes. Please All right. do. I would be so grateful for that. All right. So I'll utilize one of my instruments here. This is a... Mm, a golden eagle feather that was given to me by a patchy relative of mine. Mm. Go ahead and, and just do a little blessing. So Father, Mother, Creator, Source, I thank you for this opportunity to be in this prayer place that was founded before the creation of time. I thank you for the above place, below place, the inside place, the east, the south, the west, the north, and all the holy ones that have guided us to this moment. I thank you for Jeffrey. I thank you for his life, for his opportunity to share this voice, this message of the Sacred Seven. I pray a blessing over all his ancestors back to the very dawn of creation and that those voices, those guidance that system inside of this world of connecting to what it is to find the light would shine. And I know that there's more to come as uh, my brother here begins to investigate and begins to, Mm. to know more about himself, more revelation, more direction. And I pray also prosperity in the, the newness of this year. And we just thank you for all those good things. Beauty above, beauty below, beauty beside, beauty in front, beauty behind, beauty within. I am, we are made beautiful again. Aho and amen. All right. Amen. And thank you. I, that's, I'm moved. (laughs) Uh, May
0: we connect that hoop. mm. Thank you for that. You know, thank you so much. I, I can feel that spirit and that energy. So thank you
1: for sharing that
0: powerful medicine with us today.
1: For sure. And let me know if there's ever another time that we can go on and uh, connect. Definitely. I'd love to do that
0: again. Yeah, you know, I feel like there's so many different directions we could explore together. So I thank you. Great. That. Just reach out. My, my community is always open to your community. Sweet. <laughs> Psychologist Peter A. Levine tells us, Trauma is a fact of life. It does not, however, have to be a life sentence. One of the greatest changes, the greatest gifts we can bestow is to simply love and accept ourselves. There is no timestamp on trauma, no formula to get you from horror to healing, but there is hope in seeking direction to guide you on that journey. Andrew and I have talked a lot today about how the Sacred Seven can lead you on this journey, but we wanna know, What did you find valuable in our message? Leave us a note at www.thelightinside.us or tag us on social media at The Light Inside Podcast, sharing what you found meaningful in this episode. We're grateful to be able to continue helping you, our valued listening community, discover your light inside. Thank you for allowing us to reach more people so that they can experience a more balanced and joyful state of being. Remember to continue to support the growth of our program by sharing feedback or leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us next week as we learn the easy three-step system to remember anything and everything with international man of memory, Chester Santos. Find out more on The Light Inside.